This morning, continuing in Romans chapter 9, looking at verses 14 through 18, Justice, my people, part 1. Now, we're reviewing the entirety of the book of Romans here, so Paul begins by saying that he is not ashamed of the gospel, but instead he is eagerly obliged to it, for the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, the wrath of God revealed against men, and the righteousness of God revealed when he makes propitiation for them ransoming back his people to himself, purchasing our lives with the lifeblood of Christ, that he may be both just and the justifier. For Abraham believed God, and yet it was reckoned to him as righteousness. The very power of God on display, faith credited for something greater than it was, something out of nothing. Having been justified through faith, We rejoice, we boast in the hope of God. For we were dead, born in the image of Adam, from dust to dust, in the trespass of our sins, but in Christ we live, because in Christ we die. What is a Christian? A Christian is one who, by the baptism of the Spirit, has died with Christ, been buried with Christ, been risen with Christ by the glory of God the Father to walk in the newness of life. And a profound identity it is. Life from death into existence, that which did previously not exist. All by the power of the Spirit of God where we were buried with Him in death that we may be raised with Him in life. Men are enslaved to their own beings They're not enslaved apart from themselves. They're enslaved by themselves. It is the will that men are enslaved to. And Romans says of the natural man in chapter 8, verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you, you have a new being a new identity, and a new desire. In the very next breath, Paul says in verse 9, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, if this is true for you, you have been adopted, literally set as a son or daughter of God. You have an inheritance. The Spirit is our guarantee, the very earnest money, the down payment of our Lord with the result that God will by no means forfeit on what He has already paid. The down payment of the life of a son that brought forth the Spirit into the heart of men is way too much earnest money to walk away from. Our inheritance is guaranteed. It is sealed by the Spirit, so much so that even when we don't know how to pray, the Spirit Himself intercedes on our behalf. Therefore, we can make the most outrageous statement the most outrageous statement of anything on earth, anything that can be said among men that all things work for good. For in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, Paul writes and says, And we know that for a very particular group of people, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose friends are you called according to the purpose of god say well i don't know well let me ask you something do you love god and i don't mean do you love the things of god i mean do you love god 
It's like me asking you about your wife. Do you love your wife? I don't mean do you love her cooking and do you love the way that she wears her hair or do you love your husband and yeah, I like the way he's a provider. I'm not talking about do you love the stuff about him. I mean, do you love him? Because if you do, you have been released from the place of verse 8 where it says that the natural man cannot please God and have been moved by the Spirit of God into an inheritance that is guaranteed by the Holy Spirit, something out of nothing. If you truly love God, friend, you are called according to His purpose. And if that's the case for you, you've never had a bad day. You may have had some hard ones, but you've never had a bad one. God's calling according to his own purpose and not towards the purposes of men can sometimes be anguishing for men because he is not us. His ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. It can be difficult. Just last week, Paul tells us this is the way that the promise came to you. Jacob I loved and Esau I hated Two children before they were ever born, not because of the actions that they would do that God knew beforehand, but specifically so that the purpose of God in election might stand. He loved one of those boys and he hated the other one. The calling according to God's purpose can be difficult. I mean, you just look what Paul said just early and earlier in the chapter. Look what he said at the beginning of chapter 9 versus what he's saying at the end of chapter 9. And you will find that the heart of Paul simultaneously breaks for the lostness of his people. It breaks for the lostness of Esau. And yet celebrates the elective purpose, the promise of God. And when you start talking about this stuff, The heart of the natural man will always, and the heart of the flesh will always, lay the charge. Is it right for God to do that? Is that a right thing for him to do? Is it right for God to unilaterally direct the destiny of individual men? And not just some individual men, apparently, but all individual men. That this isn't a picture of God that's just kind of moving and shaping the big picture. Is it right for God to unilaterally direct the destiny of men? Is there injustice on God's part? And Paul knows it's in the heart of every single fleshly born man to ask this question. And so he poses it. This morning in Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 18, after just saying, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? What do you do with this? You know, Paul says, like, what? Okay. Hard reality. What What do you do with it? What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, 
For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. So then, is there injustice on God's part? There's a couple of things that we need to walk away with right at the beginning. Two truths that really kind of foment to the surface that we need to understand about what God is saying about, or Paul is saying about, well, I guess God is saying through Paul, about the nature of God to the Romans and ultimately to me and you. There's a couple of things here in verses 14 through 18 that we have to understand rock solid before we can begin. And the first truth is this, and it comes out of verse 15. For he says to Moses... I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Truth number one, God is free. God is free. He is unbound. As a matter of fact, if you took the new members class, and pretty much everybody has at some point, because even all the grandfathered in members before we did that, we did a a Sunday night class where we taught it to everybody. If you do the new members class, when we talk about the nature of God, one of the things that we say about God is He is the only truly independent being in existence. Everything else is dependent on some system that ultimately traces itself back to His creation. For He holds all things together. He is the truly only independent being that exists. God is free. And he tells Moses about it. If you want to paraphrase verse 15, God basically says, I do what I want. I do as I will. But this is not something that is unique to Moses or to Paul. It runs from Scripture to one and to the other. You could quote 5,000 different Scriptures. But it's my prayer to make this as beautiful as it actually is. So let's look to the Psalms. Because they used to sing about it, even as we do today. In Psalm 115, in verse 3, Psalm 115, verse 3, the liturgy of the temple. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Exact same concept that God was talking about to Moses. And that Paul is quoting here in Romans, the psalmist is writing so that in the liturgy of the temple they can be singing about it and praising God and glorifying God that our God is in the heavens and He does all He pleases. God does what He wants. And there is none to check His hand. But what's really interesting to me in light of Romans chapter 9, verse 14 through 18 is the priority of order that is displayed in that freedom between God and men in Psalm 115.1. God does all He pleases, but look how men are responding, or at least His men. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to Your name give glory for the sake of Your steadfast love and your faithfulness. The priority of order 
in which this freedom is being exercised, according to the psalmist, who is a man that is writing, is that it is not about men, not to us, not to us, O Lord, but to your name. Be the glory. You see, the problem that we have with these kind of texts today is that men are so self-centered that all we ever concern ourselves with is how it affects us and not how it affects God. Friends, in the great scheme of things, which is more important? The freedom of the creature or the freedom of the creator? Man, we're so bound up on freedom. I am. I'm a red-blooded American boy. I like freedom. It's a good thing. Man, humans are terrible at freedom. Anytime we get one that we can even sort of handle, all we do is just mess it up. And then we legalize it out of existence. But I just mean in general, I'm not even talking about politics of the United States. I'm just talking about just general freedom. Humans are terrible at freedom. You want to be free? Man, you're not. And if I could, you know, most people apart from Christ, if they could pick one thing to be free about, they would choose to be free not to die. Go give it a shot. See how it goes for you. Your freedom will fail. I'd like to be free to fly without the assistance of any equipment. Doesn't work that way. Humans are terrible at freedom. God is excellent. Our God sits in the heavens. He does whatever pleases Him. It's not about us. It's about Him. It's not about the creature. It's about the Creator. And so the question that is really being posed here, is then God using His freedom to act unjustly? Because this is the question that so then... Is there injustice on God's part? And God says, hey, look, man, listen, Moses. I mean, this is the prophet they respected the most. Listen, Moses, I have mercy on whom I have mercy. I have compassion on whom I have compassion. I'm free. I do what I want. You do what I say. And Moses knew it. Moses was scared to death. He was going to kill him right there where he stood. And so the question that's really being asked, if God is free, so then is there injustice on God's part? Is God using his absolute freedom to commit atrocity? Some will say he is. Some will say if this is true and it means what it says, if he chooses some and not others strictly of his own volition, he is using his freedom to be a tyrant. It's because they don't understand what justice is and where the standard of that justice comes from. It's because they measure the standard of justice as being their selves or men that are much like them but perhaps a bit more intellectual. Man, God addresses this in Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 17. He says, your people say the way of the Lord is not just when in fact it is their own way that is not just. And you got men by by their very nature that are totally depraved that are going to point at God and say we can judge you as unjust because in your freedom we did some stuff that according to our standard doesn't meet muster. And what's Paul's answer to this accusation? Is God using his freedom to be a tyrant? 
Is he using his absolute freedom to do things that are unjust and shouldn't be done? Truth number two, by no means. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Truth number one, God is free. Truth number two, God is just. And yet, as nice as that sounds, and it does sound nice, I mean, you can almost hear Paul's voice kind of booming this out of the text, you know, it's what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. You know, it sounds great. It's very theatrical. It's probably why we translate it that way. It's a bad translation. We've seen it three or four times already throughout the book of Romans. The Greek here, we won't go into it all because we've done it a dozen times. The Greek word has absolutely nothing to do with means. Nothing to do with means. It has nothing to do with the means at which a conclusion is arrived at. Instead, it has everything to do with being. Paul literally says, not being. So what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Not being. It's a statement not about how you get there, but the reality that exists there when you arrive. It's the actual thing you find at the end of the means. Paul says, it's not his being. To be unjust. It's not that he just isn't. It's not that he's just acting in a way that's not unjust. That's not who he is. It's not simply that God does not do unjust things. It's that God himself is not unjust. Christians, let me tell you something. You worship a just God. You worship a just God. I don't care what you see with your eyes and the way your brain interprets it and the questions that it causes to pop up in your head. He's bigger than you. You worship a God who is free and you worship a God who is just. So then, I think you have to ask yourself, what is justice? Because this idea of freedom and justice that we're seeing displayed here obviously is foreign to the idea of freedom and justice in the way they go together that men have. Because we always talk about freedom and justice and we go, okay, like, yeah, we're, we're free people here, but look, your freedom only goes so far. You know, this argument's always being made about the Bill of Rights. Like, you're free, but, it, you know, you're only free to go so far. And if you cross that line, then at that point, you're no longer free to do that. And justice kicks in. And Wingback here can tell you all about it. You're more than welcome you know, to go shoot 100 rounds of ammunition this afternoon after church and have a ball as long as you don't shoot them at people. So you have freedom, but then there's a line. And, and at that point, you're no longer free and justice kicks in. But here's God going, I'm totally free and I'm totally just. So you have to ask yourself then, what is justice? And for the quick answer, I think we go to Deuteronomy 32. Amazing piece of scripture. Once again, this is where he is speaking to, to the people of Israel through Moses. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, in verses 1 through 4. This is the song of Moses. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain. My speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, and like showers upon the herb. 
For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Okay, so here is Moses, and quite frankly, the reason I said at the beginning today that I, that I want to labor here to try to show how beautiful this passage that most people consider to be a very hard passage is, is because that's exactly what Moses does with the Song of Moses. He starts out with this introduction that says, you know, give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth, and may my teaching drop as rain, and my speech distill as dew, like gentle rain upon a tender grass, like showers upon the herb. And you go, man, this is going to be great. And then it turns into like one of the bloodiest things you've ever seen. He's talking about hard concepts, and yet he says they're beautiful. And he starts with God's justice. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. And so let's reverse engineer verse 4 from the, from the bottom to the top. The last thing he says is a description of God. He says, just and upright is he. So, man, God is he's upright, he's just. You know, he's, he's, he's not a snake. Man, he's, he's not unjust. He's not going to cheat you. Man, this is, this is his character. He's, he's, he's just and, he, and he's upright. These are adjectives, descriptives. What I find fascinating is the first statement. The rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. All his ways are justice. Not an adjective. Not all of his ways are just, but instead it's a noun in the Hebrew. All of his ways are justice. What is justice? You want to know the answer? You want to define justice? What is justice? All of God's ways. That is what justice is. Anything that does not line up with all of God's ways is definitively injustice. There is not a standard for justice by which God must abide. God himself in his freedom is the standard for justice. All his ways are not simply just. All his ways are the totality of justice. What is justice? All God's ways. Whatever God does is the content of justice. Man's problem is that we want to define justice according to all of our ways, or at least some of our ways. I want to consider now what it looks like when these two great truths that God is free and that God is just, what happens when they coincide, when God's justice is operating in God's freedom? What does it look like when God's justice is operating in God's freedom? When you've got a God who can say, look, man, I sit in the heavens, I do whatever I want. I'm the only true free being in existence. I can do anything. Name it. Want a new universe? Pop. Got it. No sweat. I've thought about creating stuff that you guys down here in this little four-dimensional universe can't even fathom. I'm as free, and I did it on the afternoon. I'm as free as free can be. And anything I do defines what justice is. Okay, man, that's a powerful statement. Like, 
earth shattering kind of stuff. Like, what is man? What does that mean? Because man, here's the deal. I mean, if this God's not good, if this is true and He's not good, then whoa. So what does it look like? What does it look like when God does whatever He wants and that doing defines what is just? What does, it, what does it mean when you're the kind of sovereign king that can do and then that doing becomes the law? What it looks like is Romans chapter 9, verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. You know what I say to that? Glory to God. And here's why. Because this is a God who in His freedom and in His justice chooses to have mercy and chooses to have compassion. Because He could have just said, I'll have wrath on who I'll have wrath and I'll have destruction on whom I'll have destruction. But He didn't say that. He said, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. Guys, I want to tell you something. Mercy and compassion, you need to get your head around this. Mercy and compassion are typically viewed, they're viewed universally around the world and even proclaimed in the gospel. I think people that mean well, but they're just in error, they're even proclaimed in the gospel as mercy and compassion being the counterpoint, being the opposite of justice and, and wrath. And it's like, so here's justice, but you don't want justice, you want mercy. Friends, all God's ways are justice. And he shows mercy to whom he shows mercy and compassion to whom he shows compassion. Mercy and compassion are not the opposite of justice. Nor are they the totality of justice. Justice isn't just mercy and compassion, friend. Let me tell you what. You go down the courthouse and they're lining up the pedophiles and they're letting them all go because they want to be merciful. Don't tell me that's all of justice. Mercy and compassion are not the opposite of justice, and they're not the totality of justice. Instead, they are part and partial. They are a portion of God's justice. They're a portion of the whole of God's glorious justice in which He does whatever He wants. For there are those, not all, but glory to God, there are those that in His justice He shows mercy and compassion. You understand, if the church views mercy and compassion as being the opposite of justice, then instead of the argument being made, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part because he loved one and hated the other? Man, if these are the opposite of justice, then the argument ought to be, well, why didn't he hate them both? Because if mercy and compassion aren't part of justice, then they're definitively part of unjustness. And so if you say that mercy and compassion are the opposite of justice, and but listen, God is merciful, then every time God's merciful, He's unjust. And that right there is a lie that comes straight out of the pit of hell. Mercy and compassion are part and partial. They're a portion of God's justice. What portion is it? Now, it's not all. But praise God, it's there. Because otherwise, the all would be wrath. What defines this portion? They are the portion that belong to Christ, 
who God put forward as propitiation by his blood, that he might be both just and the justifier. And so in Romans chapter 9, verse 16, Paul comes to the indisputable conclusion. And friends, this just, I'm, I'm sorry, but I don't mean to be insensitive, but if you can read and, and the, the simplest hermeneutic that says that vocabulary and grammar combine in context to convey meaning, right? Like if you can read a stop sign and understand it, it means stop. Then this pretty much puts the end to Arminianism. So then, in verse 16, so then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Man, you, wanna, you, wanna, you talk to the Greek scholars and tell them when, when they really want to nail down something, the way they do it is they give it to you in both the negative and the positive. So here's what it does not depend on. It does not depend on human will or exertion. It does not depend on our desires or our heart. It does not depend on our deeds or our words or our actions. Instead, it depends on God. And to that I say, praise God. Because let me tell you something, He's the only one that's free. Man, if it depended on you, let me tell you what you'd find. You'd find that what you're trying to get is so large that you could do everything that a human could possibly do and find out at the end of the day it's still not enough. But this God's free. And in His freedom and in His justice, He gives mercy. And then He gives an example, which is the deal just, I mean, this is crazy town. And so He says, here's the deal, man. Is there injustice on God's part? No, man. Listen, God's free. God's just. All His ways are just. And listen, in that justice, good news for us is mercy and compassion. That's not all of it, but man, it's there. It's there to be had. There is mercy and compassion in the justice of God. He gives it to who He wills. And who He wills to give it to is the portion that belong to Jesus Christ who said, whosoever will come, buddy, so come get you some. He says, let me give you an example of mercy and compassion. Pharaoh. Verse 17, for the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Okay. Paul says, look, here's the deal. God's not unjust. Not being. All God's ways are justice. God is free. does whatever He wants. Good news is, in that justice is mercy and compassion. He shows it to whoever He wants. And get to the end of the book, if you're reading Romans to begin with, you probably know that's a pretty good-sized chunk. So let me give you an example. Pharaoh. Pharaoh. Now, they don't do it anymore, but when I was a kid, they used to show the Ten Commandments on TV every single year. I think at Thanksgiving, is that when they show? I don't remember for sure, but at the same time, every year, Charlton Heston, you know, yes, he was something before the NRA. Charlton Heston's up there. Man, he's Moses, right? And uh, the special effects were cheesy by today's standards, but they were awesome at the time. You know, you just, yeah. Man, we all know what happens to Pharaoh. Pharaoh gets whacked hard. Like, 
perhaps is hard, yeah, even worse than Nebuchadnezzar. Like, it's bad. What happens to Pharaoh? People go, man, what are you talking Pharaoh's not an example of mercy. Pharaoh's an example of wrath. And furthermore, Pharaoh had it coming because we all know that God hardened his heart, but not until after Pharaoh had already hardened his heart first. Well, we'll see about that on both counts. Pharaoh, Paul says, was purposed in God's freedom and justice to proclaim God's power into all the earth. Not to proclaim His mercy, not to proclaim His compassion. And that would be what the context would indicate, but the actual statement... And they seem to be in conflict. The context is like mercy and compassion, mercy and compassion. And here's the statement. Let me give you an example of the mercy and compassion. God sets up Pharaoh to be an example of and a proclamation of his power. What do you do with this? Well, you got two options. You've got theology of preference or you've got theology that belongs to Scripture. And so the theology of preference, we've all heard it. I believed it once upon a time. Um... The theology of preference is this. God hardened Pharaoh, made him obstinate so that the wrath of God would come on him, but he only did that after Pharaoh had already hardened himself. So really, if Pharaoh had just repented when he had the chance, then everything would have been hunky-dory. And there's a couple of proof texts that they'll quote for this. One is out of Exodus chapter 8, verse 31 through 32, where it says, The Lord did as Moses asked. He removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. And not one remained, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also. See, it wasn't the first time. See, Pharaoh's got him a little habit going here. God do stuff, make life miserable. People end up dead. Everything's bad in Egypt. And Pharaoh says, I don't care. I ain't changing. Pharaoh hardened his heart. He would not let his people go. And then, a chapter later, in Exodus 9, 11 through 12, the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. Friends, if you got boils so bad, you can't stand up. They're bad. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. And so the argument here is like Pharaoh hardened his heart, he hardened his heart, he hardened his heart, he hardened his heart, and finally God has enough and said, okay, I gave you all these chances, and I'm not giving you any more chances. I'm going to harden your heart. We're going to end this deal because I'm sick of playing the game. Okay, that is doctrinal failure. It sounds nice, but it won't stand the test of Scripture. Because the theology of Scripture would say way before the events of chapter 7, 8, 9, and all the plagues, when God was purposing what He would do, the same way He was purposing what He would do with Jacob and Esau before either was born and had done anything good or bad, not because of what they were doing, but so His purpose and election would stand. Way before any of this happened, when God was purposing what was going to occur, in Exodus chapter 4, verse 19 through 23, the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Moses hadn't even made it back to Egypt yet. The Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. And so Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey. And he went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, 
See that you do before Pharaoh. Now I want you to listen to what this free and just God is doing. When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. All his works are justice. He tells Pharaoh, listen, buddy. I know you may think that you're the son incarnate. But I spoke that thing into existence. And if you don't let my children go, you won't have to worry about me killing you. I'll kill your boy. A quick word to lawlessness. Don't mess with God's kids. Friends, that's the theology of Scripture. That before the events ever started unfolding, when God was purposing what He would do, He said, you go tell Him this, I'll harden His heart, I'm going to burn Him to the ground. This begs two questions. Two. Number one, why did God need to harden Pharaoh? I mean, really, why, why do you need to? Because it seems like Pharaoh is doing a pretty good job on his own. You know, I mean, if you go back there and read the full narrative, we're just, you know, grabbing sound bites because we don't have time to do this for two and a half months. But if you go back there and look at the full narrative, I mean, man, Moses comes and, and he, you know, he says, listen, if you don't let him go, X is coming. And Pharaoh goes, I don't care, man. I'm, I'm the incarnation of Ra. Bring it. And he brings it. And it's bad. And they come in there and go, listen, we told you. Now look, to show you some mercy and some compassion as part of God's justice, I'm going to tell these things to go, and God's going to send them. And man, he does them. Whoop, they go. And he says, now will you let his people go? He hardens his heart. He goes, nah, I ain't let them go. And every time it just gets worse and worse and worse, just ratchets it up, ratchets it up, ratchets it up. If the bulls have fallen on everybody in Egypt, that means Pharaoh's got him too. The magicians can't even stand up. God says, I'll harden his heart. Depravity on full display. Question number two. What was the object of God's purpose in hardening Pharaoh? What was he doing? Because this is his purpose unfolding. So what was it? Okay, say, question number one. Why did God need to harden Pharaoh? Well, because all that God does is justice. And a portion of that is mercy a portion of that is comfort, and a portion of that is pain. And in Exodus chapter 12, we see Pharaoh suffering the pain portion of God's justice. In Exodus 12 and verse 29, it says, At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. Man, he's even wiping out the herds. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house where someone was not dead. 
And then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Go out. Up. Go out from among my people. Both you and your people Israel and go and serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone. And bless me also. Looks like Pharaoh repented. Till you get to chapter 14, verses 5 through 7, when he'd had a little time to cool off from his pain. And the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled. The mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And he said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? We let the nation's largest free labor force just walk away. So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. Why the change of heart? Because the reality is, is enough pain will make a man do anything. Enough of it will. Especially when it's being doled out by a free and just God. Enough pain will make a man do anything. The sorrow of the punished. But it only lasts until the pain begins to subside. Hey Amen. There's a lot of criminals that will set up for before a parole board and tell them how sorry they are. And then turn around and recommit within days. You hurt a man bad enough, he'll tell you what you want to hear. Right till he stops hurting. That's why God hardened Pharaoh. What was God's, or that's why God had to harden Pharaoh. Next question. What was God's purpose in hardening Pharaoh? Why did he harden him? We know why he had to. Because pain only lasts as long as pain lasts. But what, why did he do it? Well, Paul tells us. He did it so that his power might be displayed before the whole earth. He did it for his, and the display is the glory. What was God's purpose in hardening Pharaoh? It was glory. The shining forth of His name and His character, specifically in power, both to Israel and to the whole of the world. And shine it forth He did. Shine it forth He did. Well, sure He did, you say. Absolutely. It shone forth. I mean, after all, in that day, Egypt was one of the few empires through history to truly be the world's only superpower. And it was a rock star of one for its day. It was the strongest, it was the meanest, it was the fastest, it was the grandest. I mean, they're still digging stuff out of the sand over there. Glorious monuments, much of which were built by the hands of slave labor. You say, yeah, it shined forth all right. 
I mean, God said what would happen to him. He said, I'm going to go down there and I'm going to bust Egypt like a reed. And when I'm done with him, I'm going to crush him to the ground. And when I'm done with him, you know what happens when you bust a reed, right? You ever tried to fish with a busted cane pole? You go, Granny used to keep them down there in the milk barn, and you, there were four or five of them in the corner, and you can grab them and go down to the pond. You know, if you got the wrong one, man, there's one down there that was busted, and if you didn't think to check, because a busted reed, once it stands back up, looks completely fine until you pull on it, and then it just goes, and does nothing, just turns over 90 degrees. It's what God said he was going to do to Egypt. He said, I'm going to pop them so hard, there'll be a busted reed. They will never be the same, and no one will ever be able to rely on them again. I'm going to take the world's largest economy and destroy it in a matter of weeks. I'm going to take the world's most powerful dictatorship and wipe it off the map in a matter of... You understand, if you're Pharaoh, what it means to have your firstborn son slain. The dynasty is over. Because you can't give birth to another son of Ra. Yeah, people knew. Those Israelites marched out of there. Man, they became the talk of the neighborhood quick. People were worried about what was going down with them. Paul finishes in verse 18. Let's, let's, for context, 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth, so then he is mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Well, that's certainly true. And Pharaoh certainly would beg that point. But Pharaoh was offered up, not as an example of hardening, but initially in the context was offered up as an example of mercy and compassion. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, the scripture says to Pharaoh, Friends, the hardening of Pharaoh was one of the most, not the most, but one of the most merciful and compassionate acts that God has ever rendered on behalf of mankind. The hardening of Pharaoh, a man who showed what his heart was, that he would never of his own accord, no matter what you did to him, relent. The hardening of Pharaoh was one of the most merciful and compassionate acts that the world has ever seen. If Pharaoh had not been hardened, Israel wouldn't be celebrating the Passover today. 3,500 years later, Jews around the world still like the menorah. These people are the people of promise. In hardening Pharaoh, he showed mercy to 600,000 Jewish men. That puts us with the way these people had kids way in the millions. 
By hardening Pharaoh, he showed mercy and compassion. Because remember, mercy and compassion, friends, they're not the whole of God's justice. And neither is wrath and hardening and pain. But they're all part of it. And in purposing Pharaoh to be this, this one man, in doing so and in hardening him, he showed compassion on millions of Jews. And even more than that, because a mixed multitude went out with them. You really going to lay charge to harden a guy who would have hardened himself over and over and over and over and over to his own destruction as he proved when the death of his own boy and the end of his dynasty wasn't even enough to stop him? He would have ground those Jews into the dirt. There wouldn't have been a Hebrew left. And God said, you will not. We're finishing this now. And to this mass multitude... Millions from Israel and a mixed multitude. We have no idea went with them. Man, they weren't the only slaves in Egypt. There were people like, man, we out of here. I'll convert today. <laughs> Let me go with you. He showed compassion to millions. The people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. It continues to this day. God's purpose must stand. God hardened Pharaoh for good reason. He hardened him so that in justice the true character of his heart could be displayed. Not just the character of a man who'd had enough pain that he said, Uncle, until the pain went away. But so the character of his heart by which God judges could be displayed. God's glory was seen in his power to take a shepherd from Midian and bring the empire to its knees. The mixed multitude in Egypt received his mercy he said, yeah, but most of those people went out to the wilderness and died for a lack of belief. Yes, they did. Most of the adults did. Not their children. God used hardening Pharaoh to bring salvation to a Canaanite prostitute 40 years later. When that nation that had went out when their children were getting ready to come into the land and Jericho was going to fall, there was one there when that city was going to fall under the wrath portion of God's justice, there was this one prostitute of all people, a lady named Rahab, that God said, nope, I show mercy to whom I show mercy and I show compassion to whom I show compassion. I harden Pharaoh to show my power to the world that I may show compassion to this prostitute. He's going to get deep into this idea as we move down the page. But guys, it's not just 600,000 Jewish men, their wives and children that he showed compassion to by hardening Pharaoh. It's not just the mixed multitude that went up with him. It's not just Rahab the prostitute that he saved at Jericho. It's, just, it's not just the lineage that came out of this nation that was King David and the glories of Solomon. All of those sorts of things. And all of the Jews that are alive today that would have never been alive if he hadn't have hardened Pharaoh. 
In hardening Pharaoh, he showed mercy and compassion to billions upon billions. For Paul says in Romans chapter 9, verses 4 through 5, they are the Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. And to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Do you not understand that in God's purpose, this is what he said to Paul in Romans chapter 9, this is the way the promise came to you. Oh man, it's got tough parts in it. As a matter of fact, let's just back it up real quick. Verse 8, It is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all who are children of Abraham because there is offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. This is God's promise. This is God's purpose. And this is just a portion of it recorded here. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she said, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Friends, that's what the promise said. We talk about the promise a lot. And that's a good thing because that's the way Scripture talks about the gospel. But friends, the promise doesn't start with John 3.16. Man, that is, that is not even reductionism. That's dissection of the promise of God. That, that's like... Yeah, that's insane. That's like walking up to a sushi bar and claiming that you love sushi because of the little fried, crunchy, crispy things, little um, tempura flakes that are on the side of the plate. You like those. You don't like anything else. But I love sushi because I like this. That's not how it works, man. You can't take that stuff. Man, this is what the promise said. The promise didn't start with John 3.16. The promise didn't start with Matthew 1. The promise didn't start with Jacob and Esau. Promise sure didn't start here in, uh, in, in Egypt with Pharaoh. And the promise began when God looked at the serpent and said, The seed of the woman will crush your head. And everything else that comes after that is God purposing that promise as it expands throughout the people of this world. If God hadn't crushed Pharaoh, you would not have the statement that they are Israel and to them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. Crushing Pharaoh brought mercy and compassion to billions upon billions upon billions of saved men, women, and children. That's how it's good. God is free. God is just. He looks down on an Egyptian king. He says, 
you tell him if he doesn't let my children go, listen, lawlessness, don't mess with the children of God. You don't let my children go, you will be utterly destroyed. And in doing so, the children of God went from being a couple million to untold billions because of what God was accomplishing in the purpose of his promise. Now, like I said, here in a couple of weeks, he's going to take that idea and just magnify it so bright you can't already see through it. But we'll get to it when we get to it. Let's pray.